All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. It's T-minus a week and some days until Device Talks West. I hope you're planning to join us at the Santa Clara Convention Center on October 18th and 19th. It's going to be a great couple of days. Uh, Registration numbers are looking strong, uh, but more is better. More is definitely better. We definitely would love to have every single one of you at Device Talks West. So uh, please do go to west.devicetalks.com to register. One person who will be there is our guest today. His name is Nathan Salike. He is the CEO of Supira Medical, and Supira is part of the ShifaMed program. ShifaMed, as a matter of fact, is sponsoring the uh, the day one networking reception on the night of Device Talks, the first day of Device Talks West. So uh, that will be an excellent time to uh, to build your medtech network and to get to meet some really great people. So please, uh, if you're going to Device Talks West, make sure you set aside some time to spend uh, the evening with us at the reception. It's going to be a great uh, couple of hours within a great couple of days. So uh, Neat Slunk and I started talking uh, a while ago, uh, actually, around the time that Abiumed was acquired, and I'll reference that in the interview uh, he introduced me to Sapira then, and uh, it's a company that uh, I've been tracking from afar. Asked Nithin to be on our interventional panel, which is happening on day two at Device Talks West. He'll be on the panel with folks from Acura Medical and Elixir Medical talking about the future of interventional care. So uh, it's an area of interest, interventional care. I mean, obviously, as we see treatments move out of uh, higher degree, higher level Clinical settings, uh, interventional care is going to play a bigger, bigger role, and interventional tools are going to be more important. More important. So, uh, Kayleen Brown will be leading that conversation, and uh, it's going to be a great one. So, you'll get a hint of that in the interview today. I talked with Neaton about his past, his path rather into medtech. Well, about his past and his path into medtech, and sort of how he positioned himself to be a startup CEO. And we'll also, of course, talk about Superior, about how its uh, how its device, its PVAD device, is uh, well superior, or they hope it'll be superior to existing devices. So uh, we'll get into that as well. So I'm very happy to have Nathan on the podcast today. It's a great story, great medtech story. And uh, once again, he'll be part of Device Talks West. I hope you'll be part of Device Talks West. I know I said that at the top, but uh, we're really excited about this program and would definitely like to have you be there. And if you are attending please do say hello. Uh, it's a very small space. I've run the video on LinkedIn. We uh, toured the space, Kayleen and Brown, during our MedTech Nerd Tour. Uh, showed you where the uh, the theater will be. We got the outdoor, the outside of the theater, but where the breakout rooms will be, uh, it's going to be a fantastic spot for networking. So go to west.devicetalks.com. Use the code DTW25 to save 25% off the price of registration so you can get in for just over $500 for two days of uh, great instructions, great connections, great insights. Uh, I had a, a really busy week this week talking with the speakers. Uh, I had a chance to speak with Fred Kostravi, who was uh, everything that I thought he'd be. Super nice, super motivated, great story for imperative care. 
I talked with Hani Abuhalka from Johnson & Johnson MedTech about their very unique approach to uh, digital surgery and surgical robotics. We'll cover that also at Device Talks West. Uh, go to my LinkedIn post from Friday. I'll talk. I'll reference all the people I spoke with, Daniel Hawkins, others in prepping for this meeting. And the more conversation, with each conversation, I get more and more excited. So I can't stress this enough. It's going to be a great two days. I know there are a lot of MedTech conferences but I really hope you'll take some time to join us. There's so many medtech companies within a 20-minute drive of the Santa Clara Convention Center. I'm sure you can find the time to stop by and find the programs, find the conversations that mean the most to you. And of course, build some time to come to the networking reception. We'll have one the uh, the day before, but also the one that Chief Ahmed is hosting the day in between, the night in between the two days. So, so much going on for the medtech industry at Device Talks West. I really do hope you'll join us. Go to west.devicetalks.com. Uh, I will be uh, taking off a couple of days next week. I'll be working some of those days. But very happy to say I'm going to go visit my son out at Purdue with my whole family. So we're looking forward to that. But uh, we do have a great Device Talks Tuesdays coming up this Tuesday, and I'll be there for that. And it is brought to you by MTD Micromolding, and we'll talk about how material behavior about material behavior at the micro scale. The title is material behavior at the micro scale, the core of medical device innovation. So uh, it's an important topic. Go to devicetalks.com to register for that. You can watch that live at 4 p.m. Eastern on October 10th, or you can watch that on demand at your leisure. Uh, other than that, let us just roll into the conversation I had with Nathan. Uh, there's just so much going on. I didn't have a chance to record uh, any kind of session with Chris, Chris Newmarker, but we hope to get back in that rotation. If not next week, uh, certainly after Device Talks West. Just a reminder, we'll also be at Device Talks West. The final discussion of the day will be another live Device Talks weekly recording. So if you'd like to see one of these silly things recorded <laughs> in person, uh, that's another reason to go to Device Talks West. We'll do it right there on stage. Uh, we'll have myself, Chris Newmarker, Kayleen Brown, Joe Mullings of the Mullings Group, and I'm sure we'll we'll find one or two other great experts as well to kind of just give us their their sense of uh, of the two days and maybe some some comments as to where things are going in medtech. Uh, we did this in Boston; it was not only fun, but uh, Joe Mullings had offered up thoughts about private equity, which are bearing out, and some other observations with bearing out. So, if you want some insights on where things are headed. I highly recommend you uh, you sit in on that session and we'll take questions from the audience too. So uh, it should be a lot of fun and uh, we'll work to get that podcast out the very next day. So hopefully we'll have that, uh, that little wrap-up session for you uh, sent directly to your listening device if you are a subscriber to the Device Talks Podcast Network. Well, Nathan Salenke, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Glad to be here. I'm very happy to have you on. I know we had connected uh, several months ago. You had reached out after the uh, Abiumet acquisition to introduce me to Sapira and its company I've been tracking for a long time. And uh, it's great to have you on the podcast and not only to tell your story here, but I know we're going to be telling your story or you'll be on a panel at Device Talks West looking at new interventional technologies. So it's kind of a, a great opportunity to talk about you, to sort of preview some of the things you'll be sharing at Device Talks West. So thank you for, for being part of Device Talks West, by the way. So let's go into uh, your story first, though. We always love to find out a little bit about our, our guests. What was it that drew you to the medical device industry? Tom, it goes back to the graduate school. You know, I was working on my uh, PhD at that time uh, on the East Coast. 
and uh, I was a mechanical engineering student at that time. I was always fascinated by machines and uh, equipment, so that's how I end up into me mechanical engineering. However, it's one of those things where you take a class under a faculty that's just out of curiosity. So I happened to take a class on biomechanics. And that time, the faculty, the professor who taught the class was just outstanding in teaching. But more so than that, he showed how much similarity exists between a traditional machine and a human being in terms of problem solving and application of engineering to deal with the disease states and disease process. So I just took that class out of curiosity, and that made me switch my research focus from traditional mechanical behavior of materials to cardiovascular biomechanics. Interesting. Yeah, he had a research grant uh, to study those days. Angioplasty was you know, available, however, very high uh, recoiling rate where you inflate a balloon, but balloon, as soon as you deflate, the vessel will collapse sometime as much as 30% of the patient. And that's very catastrophic to have a vessel to collapse after angioplasty. So he had a research grant to study properties of the blood vessel. And that's how you know, I got uh, to switch the research topic from traditional material to vascular biomechanics. And uh, you know, sub subsequently, you finished the PhD and uh, rest is history. Interesting. So looking back now, you've been, you've been in this industry for a good long time. Looking back to that lecture, did he deliver on the goods? Did he oversell sort of what was possible with technology via the functioning as a human body would? Was it as easy as maybe you thought it was watching that presentation was a lot more difficult. How do you look at that lesson now from where you are today? No, he really gave a framework of, I call cardiovascular mechanics. And since then, if you look at the journey from angioplasty to bare metal stent to drug eluting stent to atherectomy and more recently shockwave medical, all of that fundamental that I was working on at that time as my PhD thesis was, that a different stenosis or plaque formations in the human being have different composition. And depending on the composition of a plaque, you need to come up with possibly different uh, mechanism to open that blood vessel. And I think, I think that fundamental is still valid, and it really got validated by all of the therapies those got developed in the last 25 years. That's fascinating. I certainly see the appeal of that lesson. My, as I've mentioned on this podcast multiple times, my son is is going into mechanical engineering with an eye toward aerospace. But I really, I hope he gets a class like that that just opens his eyes to the opportunities in biomed. <laughs> Glad you said that because that was exactly where I was heading. I, oh, really? Aerospace or, or or automotive? Those those are my two choices at that <laughs> time. And the, that 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 class offered such a unique and different uh, perspective and. Uh, I've been lucky that uh, almost last uh, entire career of 25 plus years, I get to work on cardiovascular devices. That's amazing. So what was, uh, what was your first job out of college? So as I was finishing my, uh, my PhD, I you know, started reaching out to different cardiac and vascular companies. And uh, along those search process, I happened to contact W.L. Gore and Cordis and ACS Guidance those days. W.L. Gore uh, happened to offer me that job uh, out of school. And that's where the first job came in as R&D engineer, where I was there for 15 years. Oh, so did the, the time at W.L. Gore, what was that? What was the culture like? What was the experience like? You were there for 15 years, so it obviously connected with you. But what were some of the lessons you learned from that time there? 
WL Gore at that time was a surgical vascular company, uh, primarily surgical vascular graft company. And they wanted to you know, go into another other areas, and including cardiology, including cardiac surgery. And that's when they hired some of us uh, fresh out of grad school as the fresh PhDs with expertise in certain areas. So my expertise being in cardiology and uh, uh, cardiovascular mechanics, one of the first uh, challenge they gave me is, hey, let's come up with a product for you know, cardiology or cardiac patients using Gore's proprietary materials knowledge, as well as, of course, the EPTFE material. And so that's how you know, it was very, uh, very uh, innovative uh, you know, times and, uh, and uh, culture. And I thought it was a good combination of academic and industry. It allowed us to come up with a blue sky idea type of project. At the same time, you don't have to work on a limited academic budget and, you know, prolonged timelines. Uh, that's the better part of, you know, working in the industry to get that industry budget as well as some uh, defined time uh, period of the project and delivery. And that's where it all got started. Gore also has a unique culture in terms of, you know, people first. And so working with a you know, group of talented engineers and convincing and sharing them your vision and having them join you as a project team member and building the team and then using that team to deliver on the product. Those were some of the early days where the innovation was really in the fast track at WL Core. So from there, you went on to Cordis? Was that the, the transition? I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile right now. What, yeah. So How did that transpire? Yeah. So uh, I continue working at Gore you know, initially in a cardiology, pediatric cardiology product uh, that was uh, septal occluder. The first generation product, Helix Septal Occluder, that recently got replaced by uh, CardioSeal as a second generation product. So I continued that journey from cardiology to endovascular, worked on the prograft medical acquisition that WL Gore had. So that's what made me come from Arizona to the Bay Area to integrate that prograft acquisition into Gore Medical. And then continued uh, you know, working on that acquisition had subsequently you know, a couple, three more acquisitions, those are integrated. Time came when, uh, you know, either I have to, you know, uh, look beyond the Bay Area of Gore's location or go back to Arizona at the headquarters. And uh, it was a difficult choice. I was enjoying my ride with WL Gore. At the same time, uh, I was looking forward to, you know, some change and some new challenge. And that was the time Tom Cordes J&J decided to relocate their business and R&D center from East Coast to the Bay Area. So as they were relocating from New Jersey to Bay Area, they were looking for some local leadership talent, and that's when I got recruited. Interesting. What I mean, we're obviously having Device Talks West at the Santa Clara Convention Center. I was having a conversation earlier today just about the, the engineering depth for MedTech in the Bay Area and specifically in the Santa Clara space. How would you... Uh, how would you Describe that depth to someone uh, that you're talking to at a at a barbecue or, or or someplace. What what is the depth of engineering talent like out there? I think that the one of uh, the, other than depth, I will say the specific skill sets, and other than that, the motivation to take on very challenging problems, not being fearful of failure. So not having that fear of failure and having a special skill set. That's a very powerful combination to go and tackle some of the problems. Those are difficult to tackle if you are not in the Bay Area ecosystem. That's a great point. Yeah, no, it's true. You, you, you do need special skill sets to tackle a lot of the problems that MedTech's facing. 
So how did you move from Cordis? I'm, I'm kind of looking, I, I saw you became ultimately vice president of research and development at Medtronic Neurovascular, but also you were at, uh, for a time, vice president of research and development at, at Altura Medical, which was acquired by Lombard Medical. So did you, had you made a move to a startup company at that point? Yeah, so startup was always uh, uh, in the game plan. All okay. Uh, what happened was, uh, what happened was, Tom. Um, uh, first of all, being in the Bay Area, you are surrounded by that startup spirit. Secondly, when I was at Gore for those you know ten plus years in Silicon Valley before that five years in Arizona, we had several acquisitions, and I happened to be uh, playing a role in integrating those acquisitions. Oh, nice. So I get to see these start. Yeah, so I get to see these startups from the other side of the fence, if you will, during my fifteen year at Gore, and I was uh, as I was transitioning from uh, Cordis. Uh, Cordis was, by the way, that time got acquired by Cardinal Health. Right. Uh, and that acquisition gave us some of us the choices, either to go to Cardinal, go back to J&J, or find something outside, both J&J and Cardinal Health. And so that's when I thought, you know, it's a good opportunity for me to consider that startup option. And uh, Altura Medical, Altura Medical that time was developing AAA endograft, which was my expertise when I was at Gore. And the CEO of Altura that time happens to be uh, ex-Gore associate. So I had that familiarity of the leadership, familiarity of the technology. And of course, it was at the early stages that I could join. So that's what uh, the transition from Cordis to Altura was uh, very, very seamless. And uh, it is something that I was looking forward to, to make that transition from large company to a startup. Interesting. So how did uh, how did Medtronic come into play? Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like an interesting so time of difficult... your life. <laughs> yeah, that was a you know, difficult period in terms of fundraising when we were at Altura. Yeah. Uh, not in general, but in the endovascular space. Endovascular space was getting a little bit saturated at that time, and uh, bringing additional funds appears to be a little more challenging. So as we were doing that, simultaneously we got a, an offer from Lombard which was also in the endovascular space to merge with them. And so that became the uh, ultimate uh, uh, opportunity for Altura to merge with Lombard. And as okay. those talks were happening, those talks were happening, although it was a shorter tenure uh, since the companies were merging, uh, I also got a call from uh, Covidian that time. Uh, oh, which sure. happens to be the e yeah, EV3 business where they had neurovascular and peripheral vascular business unit within EV3. Those were acquired by Covidian. So this was the neurovascular business of the EV3 that was under Covidian in Orange County. And that's when the call came in. Uh, it felt a natural progression of using my endovascular and cardiovascular background to work in a neurovascular stroke space. And also it gave me an opportunity to go back and uh, practice those skills again in a larger a company with a very rapidly evolving portfolio. So, you know, sometimes things happen, Tom, where you are not planning for those, but you just, just get that call and you feel like that's the right call to take and right opportunity to explore. That's how the transition happened to Covidian. And within, uh, I think, six months or so, the Covidian uh, Metronic uh, acquisition announcement came out. In fact, <laughs> I think the announcement was there was some... Uh, background noise going on as I was interviewing at Covidian. <laughs> and I said, this is good. This is good for Covidian. And uh, I took a chance saying that if acquisition happens and integration happens, and if I still get to keep my role, that's uh, you know, a good journey with Medtronic. And uh, 
that's exactly happened in fact beyond my imagination not only metronic took uh, that neurovascular business they made it a standalone business unit and uh, really infused a lot of capital as well as priority within metronic businesses and uh, it was a great ride there uh, with a double digit growth year after year those are those were the days the stroke therapies were emerging rapidly and clinical evidence was getting generated and new technologies were getting repurposed to treat stroke both ischemic and hemorrhagic patients that's great so you would you had earlier expressed that you had the startup bug that you were you were interested in in in, uh, in being part of a startup and you were with Altura and I and I I wonder at that point when what felt right about the Kivity and EV3 future Medtronic opportunity uh, that led you back into the big companies? And was there a tug of war in, internally between you that you were really kind of ready to, to hit the startup world with full force? Was there was there any resistance to going back to a big company? And how did you ultimately make that decision? <laughs> yeah, uh, so uh, Medtronic, uh, the five-year career was uh, really a, a cornerstone. Those were the times uh, I started thinking about moving from a functional role, from R&D type roles, to more into general management. And with a great coaching and mentorship and uh, training opportunities that Medtronic offered, I was getting exposed to the general management type skill set requirement and get to develop those Mm. by learning from my colleagues. As it goes with uh, talent development and growth, I was getting uh, you know, developed for those type of roles within Medtronic. And uh, one day, again, a call came in from the Shifa Med incubator saying that, hey, they are looking for a CEO to lead one of their portfolio companies. And so it was one of those things where I was looking to make a transition from a large company to small company, but also from a functional leadership role to a more of a general management role. So couldn't be a better time and couldn't be a right opportunity. And that's where, uh, again, you take the call, you go and explore, and uh, it just feels like the right uh, transition to do. And that's what happened with uh, Medtronic to Supera Medical uh, transition. So I usually ask, you know, if folks leaving a larger company to be CEO of a smaller company, what sort of, if there was some some turmoil or conflict or, or what made them choose the path that they're going to take. But just from hearing this whole conversation, it seemed like it's a pretty clear, it was a pretty clear choice for you that this is definitely what you wanted to do next. Yeah. That's great. So let's talk about, I want to talk about Superior in a moment, but I also want to, we're going to be talking a lot about at Device Talks West about engineers sort of in the opportunities they have outside of the engineering track, to become leaders like you, to become leaders at at larger businesses. How does one transition or how did you find the transition from being primarily an engineer involved with R&D to being someone who has a broader, more holistic responsibilities? Is that transition, was it easy? And and did the skill sets you have as an engineer, did they transition to what you need to be as a CEO or or did you need to find some training? You obviously needed to find some training from, from other sources as well, but what was that transition like? Yeah, I think the, to to make that transition, I think you have to prepare for it, right? It, it should not be you know, abrupt. It should not be sudden. It should not definitely be without giving a you know, serious thinking. And so I start with, uh, you know, talking about the mindset as an engineer. You know, when I was finishing my graduate school, of course, you get trained to do research and uh, trained to do, you know, uh, innovative problem solving as a PhD student. And so that time I had a choice of going more on the front end innovation or into product development. 
and i intentionally chose into going into product development route because my mindset was hey if i am going to do any technical work i need to create a value i need to create financial value i need to create a value in the eyes of our physicians and patients so i chose to more focus on developing a product by taking a concept or you know or idea and 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 repeating that multiple time then coming up with a brand new therapy or brand new idea or brand new concept hmm. and through that product development process i trained myself that look you know every function every department has to be a profit center in other words if you are working uh, for a large company in a given department you have your budget you know the company is giving you certain dollar amount and you your job is to return more than they invested right in that in that department otherwise you know at the end of the day you know it, there is no value proposition from your department so that's how my mindset was as an individual contributor then i became a team leader then became a functional leader that how do i return more on that dollar invested in the department and with that kind of mindset i realized that to deliver the value of a cross functional collaboration you need not just r and d but you need quality you need clinical you need regulatory you need operations you need commercial sales marketing to make that new product successful and so that was my mindset all along to work on a new product you have to deliver it first clinically successfully and then commercially successfully so with that mindset it was uh, that's how i was growing up you know through my roles in engineering or or technical roles however my my approach was always more financially driven and so it became a natural transition when i was ready to make that functional transition from head of the function to a general management so a little bit a uh, long answer there uh, tom but other than you know doing the obvious thing of gaining the skills getting the mentorship i think it's a mindset also are you going to look at that product from all different functions and angles or are you going to be only looking at it from your individual department. Well, let's talk about Superior Medical now before we get into sort of the the company itself and and what drew you to it. I think people would love to understand what Superior is working toward and what you're developing. Yeah, Tom uh, at Superior Medical, we are developing a percutaneous ventricular assist device, uh, also called PVAD. It's basically a ventricular assist device that can be delivered via catheter. it usually gets used temporarily anywhere from few hours to few days so other than the lvad which are the permanent surgically implanted ventricular assist device this device gets delivered via catheter similar to uh, interventional devices and uh, the technology is uh, really applicable for two different type of patient population one for the high risk pci or high risk percutaneous coronary intervention patients and other one is for cardiogenic shock so when ha- what happens is during the pci procedure some patients may not be uh, healthy enough or have comorbidities where they may be at a higher risk to go through angioplasty and stent procedure in those patients the physician can deploy our pump and support the cardiac pumping action while performing the angioplasty or stent so that's the first indication that we are going after as a priority we are also working on a cardiogenic shock patient these are the heart failure patients who may not be able to sustain their cardiac pumping function for a prolonged period so these are the patient they can use our pump 
as they wait for the LVAD transplant or natural transplant. So that's a, a cardiogenic shock indication as a second application we are also exploring. How is this delivered? If, where would the opening be? And, and is it through the, is it through the, I imagine, through the groin, traditional way? Or? Yeah, it's very similar to traditional interventional procedure where we place the introducer sheet in the groin and the pump gets delivered via catheter over a rapid exchange guide wire fashion to the abdominal thoracic aorta into the aortic valve uh, sitting inside the ventricle. So similar delivery system or, uh, or pathway as a traditional interventional procedure from femoral to abdominal to thoracic aorta into the ventricle. So what is the, the profile like of this device? Obviously, uh, you know, we've seen, I've seen LVADs, pictures of LVADs. They're not something that could be delivered that way. <laughs> they're, they're a bit too big. Yeah, no, I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked about that because that's one of our uh, value proposition. Our value proposition at Supera is that we are developing a lower profile uh, PVAD uh, that can also generate higher flow. So the delivery profile that we have currently is 10 French. So we place a 10 French introducer sheet through which we deliver this pump uh, and position it across the aortic valve in the ventricle. So help me understand then, where does this sort of fit into the treatment process? This is not a replacement for an LVAD that might last a longer period of time. This is for a shorter window? That's correct. So this device, our Supera medical product, will bridge the gap between the patients when they became uh, or start becoming the LVAD candidate but they are not quite quite the LVAD. So we come in and we offer the uh, ventricular support during the procedure and or after the procedure so that the patient may not need the LVAD transplant subsequently. So what would, and I'm, I'm learning about this space, what would, what would allow for someone not to require the LVAD space? Is this, does your PVAD provide just the support enough to allow the heart to recover itself? Or recover on its own. That's right. You said it. Yeah. Yeah. Our, uh, as you know, heart is a muscle. So anytime any muscle gets uh, time to relax or rejuvenate, uh, that time uh, is uh, precious. And our pump, by taking over ventricular pumping action, allows the ventricle to relax and recover. And in those patients, when the ventricle recovers, those patients may not then need to be the LVAD candidate. Interesting. So. Where does this fit into other products currently available? I mean, I mentioned Abiumet at the top. I mean, obviously, it was a high-profile acquisition. Everyone knows about the Impella. I mean, is this something that works along those lines? Yes. So, you know, as you uh, talked about you know, Abiumet and Impella, Impella is the product family. They have a lower-profile pump and yep. they have a, a higher-profile pump. Uh, but what happens is physicians have to choose between lower-profile and a higher flow. Because the lower profile pump gives a lower flow, higher profile pumps give a higher flow. Our unique offering is to offer a higher flow with a lower profile. I see. I.e., physicians don't have to compromise between profile and the flow. So what is the significance of higher flow? Yes. So, Tom, what happens is uh, as the ventricle is pumping the blood, the higher the flow pump provides, the better the support patient gets and relax the ventricle. So higher flow allows physician to not worry about any ventricular compromise the patient may be going through while performing the angioplasty or a, or a stent procedure. I see. The increasing flow or a higher flow gives that much more mechanical circulatory support 
to the patient, i.e. keeping the patient safe throughout these high-risk PCI procedures. I see. So where are you currently in, uh, in your clinical trials and development? Yeah, we had a, uh, our one-year anniversary some couple of weeks ago where we did our first in-human study in South America. So we are a clinical stage company. And for the past 12 months, we continue to treat uh, more and more patients like generating that clinical evidence. We also initiated our dialogues with uh, US FDA so that we can start our uh, clinical studies in the US very soon. Interesting. So I guess going back to the conversation about, about startups, what, what is the... Uh experience been like leading this this company and you led it during uh obviously you joined february 2020 the world changed in march 2020 what is that experience like i don't want to get too deep into covid talk but overall what has the experience been like of being a, a startup ceo no it's uh, as you said it you know it was very uh, interesting time being a first time ceo that too during covid time and that too coming to a startup you know it fit my personality. I usually like to go in an area where no one has been there before and try to you know, create a new path. And so COVID just happened at the right time where coming in as a CEO, I get to practice all my leadership skills, both on the people side and technical side, and navigate through the, the COVID uh, lockdown situation. That being said, we also are part of the Shifa made incubator here. So Supera Medical is a portfolio company, and we have a very unique setup here where we have a functional uh, support in certain supported functions, I should say, uh, coming from Shifa Med. So when it comes to finance, human resources, facilities, uh, IT, those we get from Shifa Med, and I get to focus more on core function at the company level, such as R&D, quality, uh, regulatory, manufacturing, clinicals. And so by having that kind of Shifa Med level oversight and having that kind of uh, in-house mentorship allowed me to not only make that transition from a large company to a small company CEO role, it also gave me that much of a, a, a comfort and a cushion to take some risks to do things in a very unique way, which were needed during the COVID transition time. Mm, interesting. So I see you closed on the $35 million Series B financing around the same time you joined. So it was must be nice to join a company with a little money in the bank. Of course. You know, that, I, I cannot take credit for that. Yes, you know, no, that, no. <laughs> uh, round was, uh, yeah, that round was raised, but that gave me the, the financial runway and really take the product from early stage of, stages of development to advanced stages of development. Yep. And subsequently, you know, uh, get to raise the Series C uh, based on the progress we made from Series B. That uh, round happened on my terms. And that round gave us the runway to go to first in human and beyond. Interesting. And what was that experience like of, of raising those funds? No, it, uh, you know, it was uh, no, very, very uh, educational, of course. You know, get to learn the value proposition that the investors uh, think about the company. Uh, it allows also to think me about you know, where and how to prioritize certain things that uh, creates the value for the company. Because the investors will invest in you if you show that your company continues to create more value. And so that was a different way of looking at the financial framework than I used to look at when I was with the larger company, where your, your stakeholders are different and your value creation opportunity or proposition is different in a larger company. So it was a very much a learning experience. And based on that learning, 
prioritizing company value creation and investors' interest as well as physicians' interest and balancing those two, that became additional skill sets that I get to gain. Interesting. So what does the path forward look like for Superior? What would you like to accomplish next? And, and what ultimately does a win look like for you? Of course, you no. Know, our path towards commercialization in the U.S., right? So we initiated our dialogues with U.S. FDA, planning to make that, uh, this being a class three device and a PMA process. So first step towards that is IDE and going through the early feasibility study. So we initiated our discussions with FDA, very encouraging response from FDA so far, and uh, going to work with them to get uh, ID approval and initiating those uh, early feasibility study evaluation uh, next year. And then subsequently to that, a pivotal study and then the PMA approval. So walking the journey of ID studies, clinical trial, and then the PMA approval for commercialization. Interesting. And final question, you referenced Shifamed earlier. Can you give us a little overview on Shifamed and how it works and, and how it generates ideas? Yeah. So Shifamed is an innovation hub here in Silicon Valley. Typically, we work within cardiovascular and ophthalmic space. Shifamed portfolio companies uh, typically uh, come up with a product concept at earlier stages, which has market potential in an existing therapy space. By coming up with that product concept and idea, uh, we typically use our capital to de-risk the technical aspect of that concept and then subsequently clinical aspect, i.e. taking that concept to first in human and then that way creating the clinical validation. And once we create that clinical validation and uh, enough confidence, we generate interest in the strategics for acquisition potential. And... uh, uh, once we go through the clinical uh, validation phase, that's when we initiate our dialogues with the uh, strategics to consider synergy with them and u- utilize their clinical regulatory pathway and commercialization to commercialize the technology. So we, in that way, become the external R&D engine for the larger companies. Great. Well, it's great to finally get Superior's story on the podcast, and uh, it's going to be wonderful to have you as part of Device Talks West coming up. So, uh, Neaton, I really appreciate you joining us uh, on the podcast. Likewise, looking forward to Device Talks. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Once again, uh, please join us at Device Talks West. It's happening on October 18th and 19th. If you want to uh, get a sense of all that's going on, I'll be uh, posting like a fiend on LinkedIn this week. So uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. Collect, connect with Kayleen Brown uh, at link, on LinkedIn, and she'll be posting as well. Chris Newmarker as well. In fact, the whole editorial team will be uh, sending out reminders as to what will be happening at Device Talks West October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Uh, so you you can't miss that. But if you just want to go get it directly in one shot, go to west.devicetalks.com and check out the agenda and the speaker list. Again, it's going to be a great two days. I really hope you're part of it. And if you are there, uh, stop me and say, say hello. I'd love to uh, hear your story as well. Uh, let's see, subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you can get all of our great podcasts, including uh, Device Talks Weekly, Intuitive Talks, Striker Talks, Boston Scientific Talks, we just put one out this week, and uh, Abbott Talks. And uh, we are uh, working on more talks, so stay tuned. So don't miss one. Go to the device, go to Apple or Amazon, whatever podcast player you use, and subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. 
Other than that, Device Talks Tuesdays on Tuesday, brought to you by MTD Micromolding. And that's a lot. That's a lot. But I really do hope I'll see you at Device Talks West. Have a great weekend and a great week, everybody. And uh, you'll be hearing from me, and we'll be back next Friday with our uh, our final pre-conference Device Talks weekly podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.